Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. Welcome to Nightlight, everyone. Happy, happy birthday, Tracy. Uh, it's nice to be live again. Uh, Barbara did not suspend me, according to rumor, for the proposed Greek culinary art show that I, I, I've wanted to do. Uh, I'm sure there are a few listeners right now saying, oh, I want to learn how to make baklava. But, um, you know, I just, actually, over the last three weeks, um, at two uh, Last-minute uh, cancellations. Then Barbara sat in the dark for about a week after those uh, devastating tornadoes came out of the Gulf Coast. And you know, I hope um, our listeners from that region are doing well. Uh, we have a super special return guest tonight. Kathleen Martin is a top ufologist, impressive conference presenter which is where I met her at the Pittsburgh MUFON conference in 2013, uh, ancient aliens commentator and captivating author. Her website is KathleenMarden.com, and there's a hyphen between Kathleen and Martin. Uh, I'm sure the vast majority of listeners know Betty Hill was her aunt, uh, so I don't think we need to go extensively into that uh, right now. Um, uh, Kathleen... Uh, recently revised and expanded on her uh, groundbreaking uh, capture, which she co-authored with Stanton Friedman in conjunction with the 60th anniversary of Betty and Barney's September 1961 abduction. Um, hi, Kathleen. How are you? Hello. I'm doing well. Nice to Great. be with you again. Yeah. We we are so glad you're here. And uh, yeah, you, you and Stanton have a magnificent book, and I highly recommend the 60th anniversary of Capture to be in our listeners' libraries. I I I've really enjoyed uh, reading it. But. And we're not going to tell the listeners, but I've updated the book. There's uh, new information. 
scientific information that I have collected uh, over the past 14 years and uh, some very exciting findings. So uh, we're not going to talk about it, but it's there. And I also did a little chapter on Stanton. All right. Okay. So we well, we have hour and 56 minutes to squeeze a whole bunch of stuff in this discussion. So, you know, let's try, try to maximize our time. And if we don't get it all squeezed in, you're always welcome to come back. But well, thank you. <laughs> you um, in Captured, you are writing about family. It's uh, also a, a case study, biography. You know, there's a little bit of an autobiography. Uh, you know, you're a character in your own book as well. Um, you, even though you're writing about family, um, you do not portray Betty and Barney as in, infallible or idealized. Uh, you, you are objective, which makes it a, a more believable and a truthful presentation of what happened. You give us several uh, examples of uh, you know, you say you're playing the devil's advocates. Mm -hmm. uh, you, uh, you know, we cannot uh, directly link trauma to uh, Betty's dreams. Uh, at the outset, uh, like you know, abduction. Uh, you know, you do say uh, Betty omitted some information, like the star falling upwards. Mm -hmm. And in uh, fact, fiction and flying saucers, uh, th there was a later uh, sky watching expedition where there was a malfunctioning camera. So it, you know, you, you have several examples of uh, you know, they're they're just normal. You know, you are portraying families just normal people. Uh, you know what I think it it really makes for an uh, a, a contributing factor to an excellent book. You know, is that all deliberate? You know, are you, it, I, I think you are seem like you're a very objective person uh, when when you're doing this research. I am. I am absolutely. Uh, I don't sugarcoat anything. I don't uh, talk in a biased way, and that includes with uh, my family. Uh, I I would not uh, be where I am if I didn't tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Mm -hmm. And Stanton would never have cooperated with me in this book if uh, I wasn't scientific and unbiased. Those are the two requirements he had for me. He he came to my house in Stratham, New Hampshire. That's where I lived at the time. I'm in Florida now. But uh, he drove down from New Brunswick, and we spent a few days going through 
all of my files, all of Betty's files, and the manuscript that I had written. I've been had been slowly writing uh, for many years. I, I investigated that case for 14 years um, before I asked Stanton if he'd like to join me. And uh, Stanton said to me, at the end, I will work with you because you are being scientific and you are being unbiased. So that's just the way I am. My background is in social science. Uh, so, and, you know, I've taken hard science too, like physics and, and chemistry and, and those kinds of things. And also the philosophy of science, which is a little lighter, I think. But uh, science is important to me and being unbiased is important. I mean, science can be biased. I see that quite mm -hmm. often. Yeah. It, well, it, it, all, all the books of yours that I've read and, and the two you co-authored with uh, Stanton, I, it, you know, there's a uh, high standard of, you know, uh, expectations that you place on each other as well as uh, yourselves. Mm -hmm. um, let's look at, uh, you know, just get, get, give us a, a brief rundown of the trip that uh, Betty and Barney took that you know, led to the uh, famous uh, abduction case. I'd be happy to. Okay. In fact, okay. I can give you some new information that you okay. might not be aware of. Okay. Uh, I was 13 years old, and uh, I had been with June and Uncle Alex and, and my cousin, and I loved that trip. I took photographs, and I was showing those photographs to Betty and Barney, and talking about what a great time I had. And Barney asked Betty if she had ever been to Niagara Falls. And she said no, she had not. So he decided to surprise her with that trip. So in a sense, I feel like I'm responsible in a way for what ended up happening toward the end of the trip because I don't think they would have taken it if it hadn't been for me uh, showing my photographs and talking about how much I loved it. So... Uh, they, Barney decided to surprise Betty. She had a week off from her job as a social worker for the state of New Hampshire. She worked in child welfare and adoption. Barney worked for the U.S. Post Office, and so he asked for some time off from work, too, and uh, they, they took this trip. They had a wonderful time in Niagara Falls. They loved the Canadian side of the falls, and uh, spent the night over there and then decided to drive on toward Montreal. So they went to Toronto and, and spent the night 112 miles west of Montreal and uh, slept very well, had a big breakfast, uh, went to Montreal for the day and had a great time as tourists riding around and seeing the sights. They had intended to spend the night in Montreal, but 
they had their dog with them and they couldn't stay at the downtown hotels with their dog. So they were looking for a motel on the outskirts and all the signs were in French and they couldn't read French. And Barney was lost. He's on, uh, doesn't know which way to go, but there is the road that takes him home to New Hampshire. So he and Betty decided just to extend their trip and uh, remain tourists uh, through uh, Quebec and then entered New Hampshire at about 9.30 at night is when they stopped to have a cup of coffee and a little snack in Colebrook in the northern part of New Hampshire. And then they headed south and they had checked their watches before they left that restaurant in Colebrook. It was 10.05 and they rewound the watches to, to make sure they were working when they arrived home and uh, started driving south. They weren't tired. It was a bright light night and uh, they were just driving along enjoying themselves when about an hour south of Colebrook, uh, they passed through the town of Lancaster and just south of Lancaster, Betty spotted a new light in the sky. And what attracted her attention was instead of uh, moving in an arc like a uh, falling star, it moved upward. And so she continued to watch it as it grew closer and closer, brighter and brighter. It was a bright light night and the moon was about three quarters full, maybe a little more. And they were just having a great time driving and as this light came in closer. And Betty said to Barney, finally, Barney, stop the car. She wanted to look at that light through the binoculars, but he didn't want to stop. And so she said, well, Delcy, our dog, that was um, Delcy, uh -huh. their dachshund, uh, needed to be walked. So Barney found a spot just south of Twin Mountain at the Mount Cleveland picnic area, stopped the car. Betty got out with the binoculars, and she's looking at the star. Well, Barney decides to go to the trunk of the car and take the gun out and um, to walk the dog because it's a picnic area and it's a wooded area. There are bears in that area. And so he thought that if a bear came out of the woods, he'd shoot the gun into the air and uh, the bear would run away. So that was his plan. And uh, he did not believe in what they then called flying saucers. He thought that was nonsense. And so he, he walked the dog. He, uh, Betty said to him, you have to look at this, Barney. This is, this is something perplexing. And so he looked and he got back into the car and said, oh, Betty, just forget about it. It's just a, a Piper Cub or a commercial plane or something. Uh, it's nothing. Although he knew at that time it really was something. He, he was in, denying this to Betty because he enjoyed that kind of teasing her and giving her a hard time. He uh, often said, Betty, don't be ridiculous. I heard that from his mouth a lot of times. So they're heading south again. And this craft is just following beside them. And they enter Franconia Notch. And 
Uh, that's a beautiful area of New Hampshire. Uh, there, at that time, Route 3 went through Franconia Notch. Now there's a larger interstate highway, 93, that, that goes through. Um, but they're on Route 3. They come into the north section of Franconia Notch, and there, directly ahead of them, is Cannon Mountain. And now this craft is up over the top of the mountain. There's a lighted building at the top. There's a little ski lodge there. And the light blinks out as the craft pass o passes overhead, meaning that perhaps there uh, is a powerful electromagnetic field that's interfering with the electricity in the building. And uh, so they continued driving on until they stopped at the old man of the mountain that is just south of, of uh, Cannon Mountain to get another look at this craft because it had come around the mountain and was now stopped beside the old man's profile. The old man's profile was 48 feet from forehead to chin, and they could see that craft was at least one and a half times, maybe two times the length of the old man's profile, and it appeared to be rotating, and they could see that it was lighted on one side, and it was moving erratically. It would move uh, in a vertical direction. It would uh, make a zigzagging kind of motion. It was completely silent. So it was very perplexing, but Barney wanted just to get into the car and head south. So they did, and next they uh, exited Franconia Notch, and this was the part of Lincoln, New Hampshire, North Lincoln, where the cabins were and the tourist attractions. And uh, so as they drove through North Lincoln, Betty was saying to Barney, you have to stop again, Barney. You have to stop. This craft is coming in really close. And so Barney was looking for a place to pull over when the craft swooped down over the highway, uh, just on the, the side that Barney was driving on, causing him to have to stop in the middle of the road so he wouldn't be directly under the craft. And you know what happens to people who drive under craft they uh, they usually end up uh, on another section of road to a to couple of hours later. So uh -huh. I've, I've investigated several cases where people tried to drive under it quickly. It didn't work. So uh, anyway, Barney stopped the car, uh, left the motor running, got out, looked up at this craft, and he now described it as appearing to be like a giant pancake. He could see the bright lights on the forward edge. And when he stopped, when he stepped away from the car, uh, the craft moved to an adjacent field. It went from 200 feet above him to now about 100 feet above him and about 50 feet away. So he's looking through the binoculars and he sees figures dressed in black, shiny uniforms looking down at him. This is all part of their conscious recall so far. Everything I've stated is conscious recall, including these figures. Um, Betty wrote about them, and Barney, uh, the, on the letter that they later sent to the National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena, only uh, six days later. So... This did not come out through hypnosis for the first time. 
Uh, and so they walked into, Barney walked into the field, Betty remained in the car, putting the binoculars to his eyes and then pulling them down, shaking his head. This can't be real. This can't be real, but it is. It's there, silent and hovering. And all of a sudden, he sees all but one of these figures who were at the window have now turned and walked to a panel. And he could see their arms go up. At this point, he could see from the tops of their heads down to about their knees. And when their arms went up, little red lights started to extend out of that craft on kind of a little fin-like structure. And something started to drop down out of the bottom of the craft. We know today what that is. That is that carrier beam that takes uh, humans onto the craft. But uh, Barney thought, well, maybe it was a rope. But then he said, no, it wasn't a rope. He didn't know what it was. But he did get the distinct impression that there was a plan for him. And that plan was to capture him like, quote, a bug in a net. And he didn't want that to happen. So he went running as fast as he could back to the car. And when he entered the car, he saw that the craft was headed back in his direction. So he put the car into gear and he went speeding down Route 3, uh, hoping he could find a police officer. But he told Betty to roll down the window and look up. Uh, she thought she'd see lights, but all she saw was blackness. It was the underside of the craft. And then uh, she and Barney heard a series of code-like buzzing sounds striking the trunk of the vehicle. When that happened, a tingling sensation passed through their bodies. The car vibrated. And then, as if only a moment had passed, they found themselves 35 miles down the highway. They had some memory of uh, observing a huge fiery orb that seemed to be sitting on the ground of a roadblock and uh -huh. of a dirt road with tall trees all around. And then they heard a second series of buzzing sounds. That, and they started talking again. Betty said to Barney, now do you believe in flying saucers? And she thought he was kidding when he said, Betty, don't be ridiculous. There's no such thing. Uh, he knew what had happened. He, but he said to Betty, let me prove I can make that sound with this car. So he stopped the car. He drove it from one side of the road to the other. He did everything he could to create that buzzing sound. And he couldn't. So the two of them rode, rode on uh, down the road to Portsmouth, New Hampshire, expecting it to be sometime between 2 and 3 in the morning when they arrived. But it was actually about 5.15 in the morning. I think the reason I know that is because I have Betty's watch, and that uh -huh. watch says 5.15. And when her, neither watch was running when they went into their house. Uh, so they set their watches for the time that they arrived and wound them, and they never ran again. Hmm. Interesting. So it, 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 and there's... Uh, a, a plaque at the site where uh, the abduction happened? 
Yes, the state of okay. New Hampshire has erected a historical marker. They did it on the 50th anniversary of Betty's and Barney's uh, UFO encounter. And uh, so I'm very proud of that. I worked with the state on that. Uh, a man named Mike Stevens from New Hampshire came up with the idea and contacted me and had people sign a petition for the state. And then I had to send them a couple of dozen, I think it was, uh, reports and articles and uh things like that to uh, prove to them that it really did take place. And I wrote some uh, a sample writing that would go on the sign. They changed that a little bit. But, yeah, so I was really pleased when that happened. Interesting. Okay, so they get home at 515 Um Let's fast forward a little bit. And uh, how did their lives as social workers and working at the post office uh, begin to change? Uh, Barney uh, really didn't want to uh, go public with. Neither Betty nor Barney wanted to go public with this story. Uh, Walter Webb from NICAP. Uh, Mm -hmm. who was an astronomer, did an investigation. It was confidential. They were never going to tell anybody about this. They could lose their jobs. They could lose their reputations uh, if they allowed themselves to be portrayed as a couple of kooks who believed they were abducted by aliens. So anyway, uh, it did have a profound effect on Barney. And I think that happened because Betty was incredibly curious. She wanted to know more about UFOs, more about what happened. She went to the library and took out the first book she had ever read on that topic. And uh, then she, when they came down to my childhood home, I grew up across the street from my grandparents, who were Betty's parents, uh, and uh, Betty could not stop talking about that experience. And they would make weekend trips sometimes up to the White Mountains uh, to look for that uh, dirt road with the tall trees all around. And uh, Barney did not want Betty talking about it. He said to her when they arrived home, Betty, don't ever tell anyone about what happened to us. Um, No good can ever come of it. But she couldn't leave it alone. And I think that that uh, contributed to Barney's post-traumatic stress disorder. Betty was not as impacted as Barney. She had a series of five dreams that happened uh, ten Uh nights after the experience. And those dreams had uh, information for which she had conscious recall, but sandwiched in between those dreams was... uh, an an abduction by what looked like uh, humans with black hair and uh, blue cadet uniforms and and cadet hats. And so, uh, you know, uh, for years I I searched for information about that kind of hypnopompic dream that you have just before you wake up in the morning. And that's when she had hers. And what I discovered just recently is that it is possible to have 
uh, a dream about events that actually did occur, but then to add fantasy material to it as you're working through uh, anxiety that you're having over something. And so that appears to be what happened because that's those ETs were not the ones that Betty and Barney saw under hypnosis. The ones under hypnosis were gray-skinned and had large eyes and were completely hairless and uh, no external ear, uh, uh, just a small nose and a slit for a mouth and um, spindly arms and legs and kind of a barrel chest. That's and, what they remembered. Yeah, and, go ahead. And they had normal hands? Um, you know, neither Betty or Barney could remember precisely what their hands were like if they had uh, three, four, or five fingers, but uh, they just didn't remember that part of it. And so, you know, it's it's hard especially if you're not focusing on their hands. And Betty kept her eyes closed a lot when she was on the craft, and so did Barney. Uh, there was a little one who was looking in through the doorway at Betty, and she, he frightened her terribly. So she was keeping her eyes closed because she just didn't want to look at him. And so a lot of what she said was through sensation. And Barney's... Uh, the impact that this had on Barney was that he developed post-traumatic stress disorder, conversion hysteria. He ended up having bleeding ulcers and high blood pressure. He wasn't able to sleep well. He ended up in the hospital. He had to take a three-month leave of absence from work because this uh, experience in New Hampshire's White Mountains had induced, uh, psychogenically induced, this physiological condition uh, that caused him to become disabled. And so this is why he was referred to Dr. Benjamin Simon. Uh And Dr. Simon was renowned in, in his field as a psychiatrist because he had developed a special technique using deep hypnosis where he could get to the crux of the matter. Uh, so, you know, maybe it wasn't just uh, that UFO experience that caused so much trauma in Barney. Maybe it was something else that happened in his life too. And so... Um, You have to look at all of that because Barney was much more impacted. But I think that part of that was that Barney had conscious recall of observing those non-humans looking down at him, that he felt that he was going to be captured, that he realized there was missing time, and that the tops of his shoes were so deeply scraped, he had to buy new shoes. And you know that he knew that something had happened and and it really bothered him greatly you know especially being a black man married to a white woman in 1960 1961 uh Barney had had grown up under segregation uh he spent a lot of his childhood uh in Virginia and in rural areas of Virginia and it was tough for any person of color in that time frame to grow up under segregation. And Barney was very smart. He, his IQ was 140. He had wanted to go to college, uh, he, but he was denied that opportunity. Uh, 
because of the color of his skin. And so that's why he went into the army before World War II, because that was the only opportunity, really, uh, for him at that time. uh, Do you think that this abduction had anything to do with race is there any evidence of that no i don't think so there's no evidence that it was for race uh at all i just i this is speculation and i don't do a lot of speculating but in the scientific studies that i've worked on the social science studies we have discovered that uh about 60 percent of abductees know that a family member has also been abducted and that this is intergenerational. That There appears to be a long-term uh, genealogical, not genealogical, um, genetic study taking place over time. And uh, I have reason to believe that it wasn't Betty's first time, but it was the first time that she remembered it. I mean, I could be completely wrong on that as well, but I do know that my own mother was also abducted and that uh, that was kept confidential, fortunately for her. And you have that mention. Your mom was abducted and... You also have um, uh, more information in your uh, abduction files book, and you know we can talk about that later. But uh, that's so. so If there was a family history on your mom's side of abductions like Barney was just kind of if we just go with that scenario Barney was just kind of like an innocent bystander who uh, got pulled into the situation um, through just uh, just by being there you know uh, right place at the wrong time type thing that's a possibility yes okay, okay. Okay. Uh, okay. And so, and you know, there's the uh, uh, and uh, you know, uh, Barney realized you know there's like some kind of cup thing you know placed around the lower regions. Um, and you know, when he's uh, taking a shower, it, it, you know, uh, that would be uh, distressing. So. All these uh, unusual events uh, lead them to uh, Dr. Simon, and in preparation for uh, captured, you actually listen to uh, many hours of the tapes. They still still exist. Yes, I have a full copy of them that Betty gave to me. Uh, She knew I was writing this book, 
before she passed away. And so I, not only did I listen to them time and time again, but I uh, transcribed all of them as well. And I wasn't a good typist, so it took me a while. But I did find that what actually happened was not the same as what was written in the first book about Betty and Barney. There were there were uh, several discrepancies, and I ended up going to John Fuller's uh, archival collection at Boston University, and uh, I found I was with Stanton when we did that, and we found a letter that hit John's uh, publisher had written saying, you know, if you if you want this to be a book, you're going to have to spice it up a little bit. You're going to have to add some tension here and there. And, and so John wrote uh, this not according to what the abduction tapes had on them, but for this publisher, you know, he was a professional writer. He wasn't a researcher. He wasn't an investigator like Stanton and I were. So uh, he did have a best-selling book. Uh, people loved it, but uh, it was not entirely accurate. Even the statements that Betty and Barney made under hypnosis were not entirely accurate. Okay. Well, let's... Yeah, there's a lot of information in this book about you know, what they you know, told you, you know, told other uh, people, you know, newspaper people, uh, early, you know, just uh, not long after it happened. Um, well, they didn't tell so, newspaper people, no. Oh, okay. no, they uh, talked or, or, to the military. Oh, that, oh, that's right. Okay, I'm sorry. They talked to UFO investigators, scientists, um, and the family and close friends, and we were all sworn to secrecy. Okay, and, and the when they're under hypnosis uh, under uh, Dr. Simon's care. Can you explain what came out of the hypnosis sessions that confirmed what they were telling you or there was a little uh, difference? Well, I, I did a comparative analysis of Betty's and Barney's statements beginning at the beginning of their trip. Dr. Simon hypnotized them separately and reinstated amnesia at the end of each session. So they couldn't share information. So uh, it gave me something to work with. I did not put that comparative analysis, that boring part, the scientific part, into the book. I just talked about the discrepancies. Mm -hmm. And what I discovered is that uh, under hypnosis, Betty and Barney were describing many things that were exactly the same, even the, the things that they had amnesia for. But uh, under hypnosis, they uh, were different from Betty's dreams. You know, so her, her, 
Sometimes they even contradicted the information in Betty's dreams. So I thought that was extraordinarily interesting, and it added more credibility to the story because I knew that uh, Betty had not, you know, just told her dreams or, uh, under hypnosis and had not uh, convinced Barney that her dreams were reality and something that he repeated under hypnosis. And so uh, that's all in captured the Betty and Barney Hill UFO experience, and you'll see the difference. Uh, I'll give you just one little sample. In, in Betty's dreams, uh, they, when the roadblock happened and the car stalled out, uh, Betty and Barney were surrounded. Their car was surrounded. There were eight to 11 men standing in the road, and they just surrounded the car. That didn't happen under hypnosis. Betty and Barney, separately from one another, said something different from the dream material. They said there were six people standing in the road, and uh, they were not human. And Betty saw what was going on. They talked about this. Betty said, what is that? And Barney said, it's the ones that I saw when I was standing in the field. Well, Betty became terrified and tried to run into the woods and hide, but she was intercepted. And Barney, uh, feeling that he might be harmed if he fought back, just opened the door and put his foot on the ground. And then uh, it was different than what they had, what Betty had dreamed. And you, we also know how Barney's shoes were scraped. Uh -huh. uh, that, that is that he was being supported. He felt as if he was floating, and only the toes of his shoes were bumping along the rocks. So in the book, it tells you every, everything regarding the evidence and how that evidence actually happened. Okay, and... It you said they, uh, page 83, uh, they remained unshakable. Yes. Dr. Yeah. Simon attempted to convince them that Barney had absorbed Betty's dreams and she was only repeating her dreams. And, and being the skeptic that I am, I, I had to check that out. I had to do that comparative analysis. I was not ready to except that it was a real abduction at that point. And, uh, and I certainly, after doing as thorough an investigation as I could possibly do over a 14-year period, uh, truly believe now that it did occur, with, and especially with all of the new evidence that's in the new book as well. But Dr. Simon tried to convince them that you know they could, they should forget about it and it was only a dream and but they remained unshakable they they went home they tried to forget about it and but they knew they had evidence dreams don't produce physical evidence dreams didn't make those shiny spots on the trunk of the car that were magnetic and that uh, were not there the day before 
So, you know, a dream does not produce physical evidence. And in your alien abduction files, you talk about, um, I turned the wrong page, um, searching behaviors. Um, searching for an answer and you, know, you use the example or Richard Dreyfus is uh, making the um, devil's tower shape yes. out of the uh, mashed potatoes and you, know, you say on the weekends you know, back to captured uh, you know, uh, Betty and Barney started retracing their route, yeah, just trying to figure out, like, what do we live through? You know, like, making this repeated journey uh, to, uh, I think you said jog your memory. You mentioned that yes. earlier in the show. So there seems to be something, you know, like, you know, you're talking about physical uh, uh, evidence of, you know, Barney's shoes being uh, uh, like, you know, that he was dragged. Uh, this kind of behavior does not seem like it, it's just going to start for absolutely no reason. Right. And I don't think that he was dragged. I think that just the toes of his shoes uh, were bumping along the rocks because they were down, but I think that they probably used some kind of device to to lift him. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. Sort of, you know, like Travis, not Travis, uh, Charlie Hickson and Calvin Parker, perhaps, that sort of thing. But, yeah, um, Batty and Barney made uh, repeat trips up to the White Mountains just searching for that area where they found uh, the the roadblock and they couldn't find it until after their abductions uh, their hip- hypnosis sessions were over and they remembered uh, and so on Labor Day weekend of 1965 Betty and Barney, my grandparents and my mother and I uh, went on a camping trip up in that area. My father and brothers weren't with us. My father was a Boy Scout leader and he took the Boy Scouts and my brothers uh, camping elsewhere that weekend. But so we got all got into the car, all six of us, and uh, we were just driving along, and all of a sudden, Barney turned, and lo and behold, there was the road, and then he stopped, and there was the path through the woods, and they walked out there, and there was the clearing where the craft landed, and the sand that they remembered walking on, so yes, that's Uh, They finally found it, and Dr. Simon had said to them, if this really happened, you will find that spot, and then you'll know that it was real. Okay, and yeah, that almost sounds like 
um, you know, some of these stories you may have heard about 20 years ago where uh, 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 people, soldiers going back to uh, Utah and Omaha uh, beaches, uh, you see stories like that of uh, Vietnam veterans going back yes. to uh, it. It just seems like they were doing confronting some uh, a very uh, horrible or tra- traumatic e- event by going to the place where that happened and. You know, I was uh, reading, uh, you know, those sections from uh, Captured. Um, I I remember a section from uh, Bessel van der Klok's or Kolk's very uh highly regarded book uh the body keeps the score and he was uh talking about uh the study done by 200 uh Harvard sophomores um between uh, the study was begun about 1939 to 1944 and okay you, 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 you get uh, after the uh, study started. There, you know, a lot of these uh, college students are going to en- end up in the uh, Pacific or uh, e- European theaters, and um, they were uh, re-interviewed uh, in- about their uh, war experiences in. Uh, 1989 and 90, and he, he uh, writes uh, uh, four and a half dec- decades later, the majority gave very different accounts from the narratives recorded in their immediate post-war interviews. With the passage of time, events had been bleached of their intense horror. In contrast, those who had been traumatized and subsequently developed PTSD did not modify their accounts. Their memories were preserved essentially intact 45 years after the war ended. Very I, interesting. I, I I think that that this uh, Dr. Vander Kolk's book, which came out in somewhat recent book, uh, I'm trying to find the Title page um, came out in 2014. Um, his recent information seems to be very consistent from uh, about 50 years prior uh, uh, to what Betty and Barney reported 50 years prior to the. the uh, publication of the body keeps the score. 
it it just seems like a consistent pattern of this is how the human mind uh, works and the, uh, maybe the more in many cases the more traumatic experience the the more uh, clearly the mind remembers the details yes as long as you have that information um, then you do and I'll tell you that uh, all these years later I remember that day that phone call to my mother going up to Betty's and Barney's house and hearing that story from Betty for the first time while Barney was sitting pensively in a corner quietly talking with my father while he was waiting for a call back from Pease Air Force Base. So, uh, you know, it just stays there. When something is that startling or uh, wells up that many emotions, you don't forget about it. Mm-hmm. I, it, it, it's, I think that... Uh, The information that you and Stanton assembled for the original book and the uh, revised book uh, is just very convincing uh, evidence. And there's, uh, you know, one of the scenes that kind of sticks uh, uh, is one of the, maybe uh, one of my favorite scenes is uh, Bet- Betty wanted to take home a book mm-hmm. from the, uh, and uh, that seems very you know, very uh, normal and she, you know, she, she was mad when like the uh like main alien said, uh, "Now you, you can't take that with you." And <laughs> she, she, she was very uh, insistent on, you know, having a souvenir. And, and you know, I, if I were ever abducted, you know, I, I want to take home something too. Right, but those little it, it, guys have the job of uh, they work as guards and yeah. assistants, and they won't let you get off that craft with anything. And uh, yeah, and and you know, she called it a book because she didn't have the words for it. You know, just like uh, Native Americans used to look into the sky and see flying canoes because they had that word. They didn't have the word flying saucer or. Mm-hmm. Uh, or any other word except for a flying canoe that <laughs> was transportation. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's uh, what happened. And so uh, when Betty was being escorted off the craft without that book that she so badly wanted, that it was more like a tablet. And uh, she said to the leader, well, he said to her, uh, I'm sorry that you were frightened. And uh, she was, and even though the entities had reassured Betty and Barney over and over again that they would not be harmed, they only needed to do a few simple tests and they'd be on their way. And and Betty had come to like the leader at that point because he had taken away some pain she experienced. And 
so as they were walking down the path, she said to him, uh, well, do you think you could come back? Because I know people who would be interested in speaking with you, who are, you know, have a lot more knowledge than I have, she said. And he said, well, maybe I can come back, but it's not my decision to make. And she said, well, if you come back, how will you find me? How on earth, out of all of the millions of people on this planet, would you find me? And he said to her, we can always find those that we want to find. Hmm. So I'm, I'm thinking maybe she had an implant. <laughs> and maybe that's how they found her that night. Okay. Uh, that puts things into perspective. That's a good explanation. So it, um, there are other uh, weird events that began happening af- afterward. Uh, maybe that they uh, were making the follow-ups like uh you, know, you just mentioned uh you know, there there was uh the blue earrings found in a pile of leaves on the kitchen table uh <laughs> yeah. that, that's pretty uh you know, going from weird to creepy type yeah the that, the earrings she had been wearing that night and didn't realize that that she didn't have uh suddenly appeared on their dining room table uh after uh, in in withered leaves, and it was on a day that they had uh, they were away from home, uh, up in the White Mountains, just searching for that dirt road. And sure enough, they arrived home and saw those leaves, which was pretty creepy. They picked up the leaves to throw them out, and there were the earrings she had been wearing that night. <laughs> So maybe the ETs returned her jewelry. I know of other cases where that happened as well, that they uh, they don't steal human jewelry. They seem to return it. Okay. And um, a few minutes ago, you, know, you said that uh, Betty contacted uh, the Air Force Base and n- not long after that uh, she began to n- notice that the phone was tapped. Right. Well, uh, yes, she... I, I don't know if they were linked, but... She co- contacted P's Air Force Base uh, because my father's best friend was at our house when Betty, one of the times Betty called, and he said that they had been instructed. He was a, a, had been the chief of police in the small town of Newton, New Hampshire, which is right next to Kingston, where I grew up. And uh, he said that Pease Air Force Base had contacted the police department and told them to instruct anyone who had a UFO sighting to file a report with Pease. So being the good citizens that Betty and Barney were, they did file 
a report with Pease Air Force Base. And uh, that that's how they found out that there was uh, also a, a radar return at 2.14 a.m. that night. And uh, it would have been probably about 2, 2.14 or a little just uh, after that when Betty and Barney were released. So I don't know, maybe it was the craft they saw. Okay, and around this time, uh, they became befriended by uh, Dr. James McDonald, and you know we know him from your uh, fact fiction in Flying Saucers book, and uh, he, he, he seemed like he was a good guy, a pretty good guy. He was. And there were two James McDonald's. There was Dr. James McDonald, who was the meteorological physicist from uh, the University of Arizona in Tucson. And then there was the James McDonald from Pease Air Force Base, who was a supposedly a recently retired CIA agent. So, you know, that, that arouses concern, too. I, I asked Betty about that, and she kind of scoffed at it and said, oh, he was a friend. Well, you know, you can be uh, friendly with CIA agents. They tend to be very friendly, in fact, and, and likable and, and talk a lot. And, you know, Barney was playing uh, paddleball with James McDonald quite a bit, Jim McDonald. So uh, that that raises questions. And he was present when Robert Holman and C.D. Jackson, who were a couple of scientists from IBM, went up to interview Betty and Barney in November of 1961. So, uh, you know, it raises a lot of questions without answers. It's impossible to answer it because that that information would be uh, probably classified above top secret, or at least top secret. It, you know, that, that's one of only a few unanswered questions in your book. Mm-hmm. You know, I think you, know, you really do. Uh, you and Stan, you know, were a team that, uh, you know, you are meticulous researchers and thorough authors, and I think there's almost you know, very little um, that you don't answer, present every angle, and you have an answer for just about everything. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you, uh, one of the uh, other bizarre inst- instances in your book uh, deals with the, uh, the 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 pink powder on Betty's dress mm-hmm. and, and you know, the splotches, you know, the, the the splotches on the car that weren't there. Uh, you know, those were some pretty. Uh, unusual events in themselves along with the leaves and earrings. And some pretty compelling physical evidence as well. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. 
Yeah, do you want to talk about the pink powder? I can talk a little bit about that. That okay. Betty's Betty's dress has undergone scientific analysis probably about ten times uh, now. Uh, there has been new scientific analysis that is in the new section in the book, the updated portion of the book that uh, I'm not going to talk about. But I will talk about uh, Betty's dress. And when she arrived home, she realized that her the lining of her dress was torn from waist to hemline. The hem was torn down on one side. There was a one and a half inch tear in the stitching at the top of her zipper. On the other side, there was a uh, the, the thick zipper fabric was actually torn. Uh, so many questions, and she put it into her closet knowing that it had to be repaired, but the next time she took it out, it was covered with a pink powdery substance. So she took it out onto and hung it on the clothesline. The powder blew away, but she didn't throw it away. She decided that she would keep it just in case it might hold some evidence on what happened that night. So the first place that it went to uh, for analysis. It wasn't until the 70s, really. And that was the University of Cincinnati's chemistry department. And they did all kinds of testing on it and uh, thought that uh, it was unusual. Now, Phyllis Budinger was the other one who did some uh, thorough scientific testing. She worked for BP Amico Oil Company, uh, formerly Standard Oil, and she worked there for 35 years. She's an analytical chemist who uh, attempts to identify chemicals that can't be identified or are mysterious. So she did a very thorough analysis on Betty's dress. And uh, so far, the uh, scientists believe that there might be some kind of yeast or fungus that was deposited on that dress uh, when it was dropped to the floor, when the examiner broke Betty's zipper trying to un unzip her dress. She had to help him. Then the dress fell to the floor. And that lower part of the dress that fell onto the floor was saturated in this pink powder. There's another area of the dress that was saturated too. And that is uh, around the upper parts of her arms where they held her when they were escorting her. They just wrapped those long fingers around her arms. And uh, so that was... Uh, pretty consistent, the scientists said, with what Betty had stated, that it did come most likely from these entities' hands and then from the environment inside the craft. And one of the PhD scientists speculated that he thought that Betty's uh, dress had been um, sterilized, that she'd been, she had been sterilized in a way, and the dress fabric itself, which killed off the bacteria and viruses. But then when yeast uh, from the floor and from the hands of the entities deposited onto her dress, it flourished and uh, finally died. Uh, 
so he thinks that that uh, is a good explanation for what actually occurred. That uh, is not in captured, I do not believe, in, at least in the old part, but something that I found very interesting. So, you know, this speculation. There are some things on, in the new part of the, the book that is not speculative at all and is fascinating information. So I think that you're going to enjoy reading that and finding out what that is. Okay. And the star map was very uh, captivating. Um, Yes. might as well talk about how Marjorie Fish got involved in what star map means to understanding this abduction story. Yes, well, when Betty was on the craft, she said to the leader, I know you're not from around here, where's your home port? And he (laughs) produced this three-dimensional star map uh, that in her dream was like uh, pulling down a 1961 classroom map, just like a window shade, but that's not what she remembered under hypnosis. Under hypnosis, it was three-dimensional, and uh, so she told Dr. Simon about that, and he said, well, Betty, uh, if you can remember that map accurately, and it doesn't trouble you too much, go home. And, and draw that map, draw what you saw. And she did. And it was published in the first book that was written about their case. And so uh, Marjorie Fish, a brilliant woman from Ohio who was a school teacher at that time, but then later went on to become uh, a research associate at the Oak Ridge National Laboratory, saw that map in the book and thought that since she was an amateur astronomer, that if this place was actually in our local galactic neighborhood, that maybe she would be able to find it. And at first she thought she'd have many matches, but she uh, had to go to the university. She had to sit down and copy, hand copy all the distance data and all of the characteristics of all of the stars in our local galactic neighborhood, out 54 light years from the sun in all directions. And then she took that information home and she started to construct three-dimensional star map models using a frame and monofilament line and beads of different sizes because we didn't have computers in those days. She spent a long time doing this and imagine the math she had to do to put every one of those stars in its proper location in that three-dimensional model. I'm just amazed at, at her mind and what she did, but she was a genius. And so uh, it took four years, she, and she still had not found the, uh, the, the star map on, in any of those models. But then... Um, a new catalog was produced, uh, the new Gleesey Star Catalog, and she went back to the university. She found it. She uh, 
copied the new distance data. By that time, she had built 14 of these models. One of them had 256 stars in its proper location. And then she uh, took this new distance data back, and uh, she rearranged stars so uh, in compliance with the new distance data and there were three stars that were not on the original uh, work that Marjorie was doing because our astronomers did not have an estimate of them being that close. They were unknown. So those three came into the map as well. And finally, she had a match for Betty's star map. And the two stars in the foreground are Zeta Reticuli 1 and 2. And the sun is on that map. Uh, there are solid lines connecting several of the stars. The two larger stars in the foreground uh, have five lines connecting them, meaning that those are regular trade routes. And then there were four other stars that had lines connecting to them, three with two lines, one with three lines. So that indicated the number of uh, times that they were, were trading, I suppose. Then there were dotted lines, meaning they were expeditions, and then those three did not have lines connecting to them. So that was a huge find. The only problem she had was who was going to vet her work. And that's how Stanton Friedman came into the scene. He uh, was beginning to speak on UFOs. He was billing himself as a flying saucer physicist and speaking ecologist. And uh, Coral Lorenzen, who is the uh, co-director of, of APRO, the Aerial Phenomena Research Organization, called Stanton and said, uh, Stan, I have a lady in Ohio who is an amateur astronomer and has found a match for Betty Hill's star map. Uh, if you're, you go to Ohio to speak, would you mind talking with her? And so finally he did go to Ohio to speak, and he interviewed Marjorie, and he said to me that Marjorie was uh, a lot more comfortable talking to scientists than in talking to the general public, that she was brilliant. He really had a lot of respect for her. And because of that, he agreed to find scientists to vet her work. One of them was Dr. Alan Hynek, who uh, you probably know was the astronomical consultant for Project Blue Book, who finally decided that uh, instead of debunking UFOs like he was hired to do, realized that uh, you couldn't debunk these, that uh, you, could, you could spread disinformation, but there was really something scientifically to study. And then David Saunders was another one of the scientists. He was a statistician who had worked on the Condon Committee as one of their primary researchers. He was the one who found the famous trick letter. I should say infamous trick letter. Um, and then the other one was the head of the astronomy department at Ohio State University. And he had, by this time, computers. Students did uh, star map models. And sure enough, uh, Betty's was the closest they could find. And, it, and Marjorie's work was perfect. 
So uh, that was terrific. Standen was the first to write about this, and uh, it was carried to scientists. Terence Dickinson uh, wrote about it in Astronomy Magazine, and then there was a, a glossy uh, booklet that they published about this as well. Terence Dickinson, in looking at this, said that the very interesting thing is that all of these stars were in a plane, sort of like Stanton would say, pepperoni pizza, and with pepperonis all in a plane, rather than raisin bread with the raisins spread out through long distances. So these stars made sense star to stars. And Terence Dickinson said that if we had lived on Zeta Reticuli 2 and we uh, were exploring through space, this is the route that we would take and the stops that we would make. It was amazing that all of the stars on Betty's map ended up being sun-like stars even though only 5% of the 1,000 stars in our local galactic neighborhood are sun-like. And all of the sun-like stars in that volume of space were on Betty's map. That was really outstanding, and it caused many scientists to believe that Betty and Barney had a real experience. But then it caused the disinformants to say that, oh, you could throw marbles into the air and have them land in a pile of sand and come up with the identification. Well, maybe you could find that configuration somewhere in space, but not having the special characteristics that Betty's map Mm -hmm. had. And that almost sounds like the Dogon people from what, like, um, yes, you know, in Africa. Th- yeah, a thousand years ago, who uh, knew that there were what uh, Sirius one and two uh, star. Uh, there, there, there were two two separate stars. Yes, and uh, yeah, they knew that before. Is like Galileo invented the telescope or something, like, and it's like, yes. I, 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 you don't just uh, come up with something like that and be so accurate. Yes, absolutely, and you know it makes you wonder uh, how long these non-human people have have been around our planet. And you know, speaking of uh, the debunkers. Uh, you know, you get so, some people writing their articles. Uh, I, I, you know, I think there was uh, one was attacking the buzzing sounds, and uh, you and Stanton uh, checked the latches. Uh, like uh, uh, yeah, Barney I, thought that. Uh, okay, Barney thought his gun was rattling around inside the trunk. And, you know, you mentioned that at the start of the show, but uh, you went out and checked how the 57 Chevys were made. There was what, uh, two latches under the hood and only one in the trunk. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, it was Carl Flock who had come up with that theory to begin with. 
Now, Carl Flock was um, in the CIA from his college days and ended up being the Assistant Secretary of Defense uh, under, I think it was Ronald Reagan, I'm not positive. But uh, Carl believed that this actually happened, but thought that Betty and Barney were probably the only abductees that were ever visited on this planet. And as he was examining the evidence, and he was thorough in his work, uh, he misunderstood something that Betty said about the lock on the trunk of the car. And uh, Betty tried to tell him that, no, Carl, this you're wrong. This is not what happened. But he wouldn't change his mind. I can't believe if, if these people who find out that they're wrong instead of apologizing and, and go on and say, you know, I, I was wrong. I apologize. Uh, let's look further. They are so bullheaded that they're going to defend it to the end. Uh, instead of admitting that they've made a simple mistake. I, can't, I don't understand people like that. <laughs> okay. and, and, and you were talking about the uh, trade routes uh, drawn between the uh, stars on, on the star map. Uh, with the... the Mars rover uh, that's, uh, you know, the photos being sent back in, uh, over the last, what, month or so, mm-hmm. is uh, there any uh, further evidence that would, uh, has come to light uh, since these photos ha- have been uh, sent back to NASA. I was, uh, you know, that that just uh, came came to my mind. I, I, I don't know if it's too early yet or not that it, I'm aware it, of. Not that I'm okay. aware of. Um, okay. it, it's an interesting, uh, you know, just fascinating project going on, and you know, just, you know it looks like you know, it's driving around through uh, what's on. And empty uh, lake bed, uh, you know, dry, dried up uh, lake, lake beds. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, um, I, I was just happened to wonder if you know, it, anything like that started corresponding with the trade routes. I, okay, just but, um, how does uh, capture differ from? Uh, Fuller's uh, The Interrupted Journey. Well, it it, uh, differs in many ways because John's publisher made him fictionalize part of that book and in Capture, time and time again, uh, say that uh, this is different from John Fuller's book. Uh, But, you know, the sequence is different. The the details about the stops are different. Uh, the Betty's and Barney's statements are different. Uh, they might have said made part of that statement, but John rewrote it so that it was more maybe articulate or um, 
I don't know, in, in the way a professional writer did. And it, uh, he wrote a good book. I have to say it was a very good book. I, I enjoyed reading it. I thought he did a great job. But he was under a tremendous amount of pressure, not only from his publisher, but also from Dr. Simon. Because Dr. Simon, him pretty viciously, uh, even attacking his writing style. Um, and uh, Dr. Simon was not happy with John Fuller. So, it, I mean, I'm amazed that the book was even uh, published because of all of the challenges that John faced. Okay, and... Um, you know, as you know, the uh, years passed, um, you know, uh, Bar- well, it, it was the uh, you know, Betty and Barney and you uh, really had, uh, what do you say, uh, Really big honor by attending uh, President Johnson's inauguration. Yes, and, uh, and his and uh, Barney's awards for his uh, humanitarian work. Yes, absolutely, and uh, it was just wonderful. And another reason why Betty and Barney wanted their story to remain confidential, Barney in 1965, was appointed to the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights as a state advisory uh, member for the state of New Hampshire. Uh, He had been given an award from Sergeant Shriver and the governor of New Hampshire for the good work he did through the poverty program. He and Betty worked on literacy programs in the state of New Hampshire because in those days you had to be able to read in order to vote. And you had to pass a literacy test. So uh, they did a lot of work and, and campaign work, too. And they were such a great, uh, a great role models for me growing up, uh, doing all these wonderful things for other people, doing the right thing. And so I was emulating them. And I ended up receiving an invitation to go to the inauguration as well and went with Betty and Barney. It was fantastic. Probably, you know, stands out as being the best experience of my entire life. I, I just loved it. The balls, wearing the gowns, the dinners, meeting all of the uh, top politicians and, uh, Fantastic time. Uh, ho- hopefully, uh, being a guest on Nightlight will be part, you know, the uh, second most memorable moment of your life. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, so when we look at the information that you uh, prevent or or presenting from an event in 1961 and you're friends with Travis Walton and 
talking with him uh, on the phone at conferences. Um, he, he, uh, Travis had his abduction uh, experience in the 70s, is that right? Yes. Uh, yes, uh, he did. Uh, okay, and then... Uh, in your the alien abduction files, uh, Denise had uh, her ex- experience. Uh, well, nineteen eighty one was the one uh, that was like Betty and Barney. Uh, uh, okay, that I, I was thinking she she had more of like a. a, a, a Seemed like she had some uh, lifelong uh, abduction. I, I uh, yes. try not to do math anymore, and I have to. But so, you know, if we're looking at like 1961 to uh, in the 70s and 80s, do we see any type of a pattern emerging from all these people that you know with whom you are very close well i i don't want to make it sound like denise was a good friend of mine when i investigated her case or that travis was when i did my investigation too uh, because that would bias me but uh Experiencers have characteristics in common. I've worked on three major studies. The first one had 75 experiencers, and uh, 25 of those were in a control group uh, of non-experiencers, so that we could compare the difference between experiencers and the general population. And then I am a member of the Edgar Mitchell Foundation for Research into Extraterrestrial and Uh and Extraordinary Encounters. And we uh, did a huge study of 3,200 experiences before we wrote the book. And then uh, we did 516 experiencers in a third study, and that was through the Mutual UFO Network with Dr. Don C. Dondary from McGill University, recently retired. And consistently, all of those studies have given us information about experiencers and how they're different from the general population and answered a lot of the questions that we had. I, I told you earlier about finding that this out is uh, intergenerational. Uh-huh. Also, um, family members have 70% of the abductees have seen UFOs at 500 feet or less away uh, from them, and their family members have as well. Um, experiencers uh, over time become psychic or intuitive at a high rate, 65% of abductees, they become empaths. 95% of the abductees are empaths. And 
they weren't that way initially, we don't think, uh, but something about their experience gave them this psychic sense where they can uh, detect the health of another person's body or their emotions uh, in a way that it's as if they feel it within their own body. And I think this is a brilliant plan, if it is a plan, by these uh, non-human entities. Because I know from all of these studies I've done that they're incredibly concerned about our use of nuclear weapons. They say that we, uh, that other planets that had reached our stage of development uh, have ended up destroying life on the planet. They've, they've created an environmental collapse through nuclear war. And uh -huh. so uh, the brilliant plan they have, I think, is to make people empathic. And I think that's part of this generational uh, change that they are uh, doing with human DNA and you know you cannot harm another person if you feel their pain so if this is intentional it's it is brilliant uh, I think they need to work a little faster though also okay. uh, experiencers become uh, more spiritual 86% uh, of the abductee group uh, became more spiritual. 61% uh, of the experiencers, 50% of the uh, overall uh, abductees uh, have paranormal events in their homes. And so there were two paranormal events that are part and parcel of alien abduction and uh, or just contact. And those are orbs, lighted orbs that seem to have intelligence inside a person's home. And the other is motion in the mattress. This is the feeling that you're lying on your bed at night and something is walking on the bed. So uh, very high percentage, 75% for the abductees for mattress motion. 50% for orbs, 61% for the uh, experiencer group overall. Um, we asked, would you want this event to stop? If you could stop abductions today, would you want it? And 71% of the experiencers overall said, no, we don't want it to stop. But among the abductee group, which was identified by Dr. Don Derry through testing. Um, among the abductee group, it was 75% who did not want it to stop. So, you know, uh, we wanted to know why. They want more answers. The older they become, the more these ETs are beginning to communicate with them, give them information about why they're here and earth history and that sort of thing. I recently uh, was MUFON's uh, director of experiencer uh, research. We recently changed it to the experiencer resource team. I've recently stepped down due to 
demands on my time. I just don't have time to do everything in the day. So I had to step down from the volunteer job. And um, But where was I taking this now? <laughs> um, uh, you were talking about the uh, renaming of uh, the, the – the team uh, a, a, a experiencer resource uh, team. Yeah, yeah. right yeah. right but we have 45 exper um well they're kind caring individuals and those kind caring individuals are non-judgmental listeners for experiencers that's something that i set up when as their director of their team and it grew over the 10 years when I was director. Uh, I'm very, very proud of that team and the people who are selflessly uh, volunteering to help experiencers just by listening to their story or finding uh, a list of uh, hypnotherapists that maybe they want to enter into a private relationship with or an online support group to help experiencers. So the way that people can get in touch with MUFON's experiencer resource team is to go to MUFON.com and scroll down to experiencer resource team and click on the link. The team will come up. I'm, I'm now a consultant on the team. And uh, so you take the 30 question questionnaire, very simple. Uh, true and false. It's not part of our the study that we've done on experiences at all. It's something just as an icebreaker to give the uh, specialist on the team a little more information about the experience. And then that person will arrange to call you and, and uh, be very kind and nice and, and listen to what happened to you and uh, help you out if they can. So I, that was the intention uh, to, that I wanted to set up when I did because uh, MUFON was getting a bad reputation because the people who were doing the investigations were doing a scientific investigation and looking for nuts and bolts uh, evidence. And... Uh, a lot of people went to, to MUFON looking for help, but all they ended up with was an interrogation and no help. So I wanted to provide that for experiencers of contact. So yeah. that's what we did. And in, in, in alien abduction files, um, they do cover that um, abductees fre frequently come away from the experience with a gift of healing, uh, mainly for animals. Uh, one person, um, a tall, thin, non-human entity with large faceted, insect-like eyes entered the room. The being positioned his face within inches of hers and stared into her eyes. At that instant, she felt the most intense sensation of pure love that she had ever known. It, it, you know, with uh, 
um, passages like that and, you know, like the, um, you know, the healing for animals, um, it, it seems like you are dealing with a lot of empathic people that uh, you uh, mentioned just a few minutes ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, met, uh, you know, there are, uh, you know, we could look at Barney's case. Or it, it wasn't as uh, positive as uh, you know the a couple of other examples. But you know, people uh, really have changed uh, significantly. If that's the right word, uh, it became. Uh, it, very empathic people, like you said. Yes, and I think that we need to consider the fact that Betty and Barney were the first that we knew of, the first scientifically investigated case of alien abduction in the United States. They, Betty and Barney didn't know if they were going to be carried off to some distant planet. There was nothing established. and But over the years, with all of the researchers... Uh, we have a much better grasp on what is going on, and and there's some consistency uh, across experiencers in in what occurs on craft and in their lives as well. And you talked about healing. Well, we asked that: Have you been healed uh, from a physiological problem or a health problem? And 45% of the abductee group said, yes, they had been healed. So these uh, mm-hmm. non-human entities are healing people as well. And it, um, the, you know, we've uh, heard that from uh, Reverend Michael Carter. You know him. Yes, I do. It, yeah, you know, uh, you know, he he was healed with the uh, blood clot in his leg. He he was healed from that. Uh, you know, there in your abduction files, there's the. Uh, A passage about the uh, um, like fetuses in the tanks. Yes. Yeah. Uh, um, Betty and Barney didn't see anything like that. It, and it, not everybody does see. Yeah. Uh, it, that. It depends yeah, upon yeah. the craft you're on. Yeah, and that was where I was going. You know, you, you see episodes of you know the X Files, you know, with the uh, you know the that that's part of the uh, uh, one of the scenes in the uh, show. Um, you're dealing with people who you know reported that it's not. Uh, appearing in Betty and Barney's uh, discussions directly to you or in the hypnosis uh, sessions is 
the like uh, uh are these tanks uh DNA uh, storage units you know uh, whatever yep. they're called well what it, they the information that I have on that from the the numerous experiencers, almost 5,000, who took part mm-hmm. in all of these studies combined, well, what we've discovered is that uh, the uh, non-human entities have said that there are several reasons for this. One, which benefits them, is that they had lost the ability to uh, pro procreate and had to uh, depend upon human DNA in order to do that. So it was for their benefit, but they said it was for our benefit as well. Uh, For our benefit, I already talked a little bit earlier about upgrading our DNA to make us kinder, gentler Uh humans. And uh, so there are those two things. Uh, also, so many people have talked about observing uh, hybrid children that they believe are their own children. They go onto the craft when, they're, when they themselves are children and play games where they use their minds to, to do things such as uh, floating a blue orb in the air from one child to another, that sort of thing on a craft. So uh, they are upgrading us and uh, also I believe that they uh, are collecting DNA from all over the world, not just human, but all the plants, all the flora and fauna, so that if we ever do destroy this planet, eventually they can reseed it. But I think that they might be terraforming other planets too and uh, putting everything from this planet onto those other planets. If you go back and think about the 1950s, there were a lot of these non-human entities in outside their craft in farmers' fields. And there was a lot of talk about collecting soil samples. Well, they were also collecting plants from the field. So, uh, you know, it appears that there are many things that they are doing as part of their scientific program. Yeah, and... In the abduction files book, you talk about this uh, gel type substance. Um, Yes. Could that somehow be related to the that that pink powder on Betty's dress? Like maybe something splashed on it, and we. we know she wasn't submerged, uh, clothed in you know, one of these tanks. But uh, is you know, with all the information that you've been gathering from abductees and eyewitnesses, uh, could there be some? 
connection there, or is there is or are we talking about something totally different? Well, I think that the the only way that Betty could have gotten that gel on her dress was if she had been put into a travel pod, and they will put a human into that to protect them. They do it for themselves too to protect their own bodies, um, and so the pod sort of forms over them. They lose consciousness. And uh, from many of my cases, there has been gel on the clothing when the person's been taken out of that pod uh, that quickly dissipates. Now, they would have had to have taken Betty and Barney in that craft someplace else. So then you have to ask the question, uh, do they have a base off the east coast under the water we know of so many reports of craft coming out of the water and entering uh-huh. the water again if they right. had a base there and they didn't want to risk being uh, caught even though they were in a desolate area um, you know they could have could have done that Barney made a statement do they go underwater I don't think I've ever mentioned that before in in the book, but I it makes me wonder now, you know, because the more I know, the more I'm beginning to put pieces of the puzzle together in my mind. And at two fifth at two fourteen, when that craft uh, came toward Pease Air Force Base from the east, going west. Could it have lifted up out of the ocean and traveled uh, back to the place where they captured Betty and Barney to begin with? I mean, that's possible, but but that's just fun speculation. We, it's impossible to have uh, any scientific evidence uh, regarding that. We'll never know the answer. Okay. Um, okay. So- we we may never know the answer like what you just said uh, uh what are some uh, things we don't know right now but you know with intrepid researchers like you uh reports that you know that you know come into you as as well what um what what are some uh, themes in ufology that you know we might be able to, to have a better understanding of what the ets want from us or from the earth Yes, uh, well, that is very, very interesting, and and that is what I'm working on now, is communication. Uh, What those non-human entities are telling humans, and they they say the same things over and over again to to humans. And, you know, they started uh, having a, a real interest in us back in the 1940s and Major General John Samford uh, who was at the Pentagon 
1952 just uh, made a statement after the, the craft were seen over Washington, D.C., and were on radar, and the, uh, the craft, the, the military scrambled craft to chase these UFOs. Well, what Major General John Sanford said at the largest press conference since the end of World War II was, these things have been seen in our skies dating back to biblical times. He said they come back about once every century and then they go away. But in the 20th century, they came back again and they stayed this time. So he said that the Air Force was just uh, studying this carefully. They weren't going to get excited or worried about it. Uh, They had never harmed humans before, but uh, the Air Force was going to begin their study of all of this. So I have to give him a lot of credit for making that statement, uh, because for me, it, it goes down in history. This is a key. And he knew that information way back in 1952. And so I'm going off that and all of the research that I've done and what I've been able to obtain from the Air Force files and from even the skeptics files uh, and to try to put it all together in in this gigantic Uh puzzle to, to come up with the answers. And that's how I came up with this one answer that I I have so much uh, information for, and that is this genetic uh, program to upgrade the human genome so that we will become kinder, uh, gentler humans because of their fear that we will destroy this planet. And, and also, not just through nuclear weapons, but since 1954, they have been communicating that uh, we have not been good stewards to our environment, and it's extraordinarily important for us to take care of our planet. And uh, I, if you go to my website at Kathleen-Marden.com. Read an article. It's absolutely free. But read the article that I wrote on uh, the CIA, uh, the Navy, and Mrs. Swan. And uh, it's a new article that I've just recently put up, but it's based upon a very interesting research study that I did where I was able to get the correspondence files uh, of Admiral Knowles and Wilbert Smith, who was the Canadian government's UFO guy, and uh, to put all of this information together. Uh, The government was very interested in communication way back in 1954, and that's communication with non-humans. So it, it's a fascinating study. Yeah, and you know, what I have enjoyed about um, your your three books is 
that you know, there there is a pattern that you are detecting you know with your observation uh skills and and, and like you know what you were saying and uh 70 years ago uh you know the statement was made uh, uh, you know about they've been here since biblical times well, you, you know you get uh Moses uh it seemed like he he was radiated after talking with uh God and you know we've had Wallace Wagner as a guest you know talking about some uh his uh readings of uh, uh the uh what seems to be uh, uh UFO uh documented cases in the new Te- old new testament um mm-hmm. but th- there just seems to be a very long pattern of uh similar reports mm-hmm. and um you know, I think the surveys that the the conclusions of the surveys you have in the alien abduction files is uh, uh very revealing that this has been going on uh for a long time um you know multi generational and you know, that's in your family as well mhm and it's uh a a fascinating subject and i find I, it fascinating yeah yeah and we're you know we're down to about the last uh a couple minutes unfortunately um you know if you do you want to uh quickly give us like, do you have any upcoming appearances? Hopefully, that's going to be changing you know, soon. I do. Okay. Now, tell, I tell absolutely us about that. do. And um, I'm going to be speaking at uh, Roswell, and that's Ooh. going to be over the July 4th weekend. And Exeter, New Hampshire is planning to have their conference again over Labor Day weekend. And then I, I'm going to be in northern Michigan uh, at an Experiencer conference in uh, toward the end, I think it's the last weekend in September. But you can go to my website, and as I'm adding uh, different speaking engagements, I'll put them on my website and give you the information about how to get in, in contact uh, or find the website that uh, is selling the tickets and gives you information about those conferences. I just received another invitation today. So uh, people are beginning to uh, decide to have live conferences again, and I cannot wait. I just love talking to the audience uh, and people coming to the vendor table and and uh, oh. discussing information with me. So it's I absolutely love it. I can't wait for it to happen again. Okay. Uh, uh, that's great. You, you know, we're down to about uh, you know, a few seconds left, and I just wanted to thank you so much. It's been an honor to have you thank return you. to uh, Nightlight, and you know, we'll 
I'll be glad to have you back. Just keep us posted. Next time you have so- something you want to talk about, uh, let us know. We'll, uh, we'll work you in quickly. So, okay. So, I'm working you. on a book now. <laughs>